0: Hello and welcome in to the Floor Slap Podcast. I am your host, Sean. Got a loaded episode ahead of ourselves today as we enter our second last week of the college football regular season. Going to be recapping that Michigan versus Penn State game and what it means for both sides moving forward. Uh, going to talk about what the hell is going on with Wisconsin. Seems like a, a season that once had a lot of promise under first year head coach Luke Fickle has now reached rock bottom. So we're going to assess what's going on in that program. Going to talk about Nebraska's offensive woes and Marcus Satterford field who's had just a miserable first season as their offensive coordinator going to talk about John Paddock and Luke Altmeyer in the Illinois quarterback situation then we'll get into a little Heisman watch some college football playoff scenarios going to preview Illinois versus Iowa this weekend pivotal game in the Big Ten West and then we'll finish things off with my Big Ten or five Big Ten betting locks heading into week 13 so like I said a loaded episode ahead of ourselves should be a lot of fun so let's not waste any more time and jump right into it This is the Floor Slap Podcast. So first things first, gotta talk about the game of the weekend across college football. Michigan traveling to Happy Valley to take on Penn State in their first real challenge of the 2023 season. Ended up beating Penn State 24-15. to We'll start off on the Michigan side of things and... It's hard to say that wasn't an impressive win for Michigan. I mean, being able to run the ball 32 straight times to end the game is a testament to their defense and their offensive line. They weren't even hiding it towards the end. It was you know JJ McCarthy, either Donovan Edwards or Blake Corum in there, and eight or nine offensive linemen for a lot of those plays. So, um, but even so, I know everyone's talking up about you know how impressive it was to come out and run the ball like they did against Penn State. You know they were bullying him around, but. I mean, if you really watch the game, it wasn't like they were really running all over Penn State. Um, you know, in that second half, you know, before Blake Corm had that 30-yard run in the fourth quarter, which really sealed it. Michigan in that second half had 25 plays for 87 yards. That's less than three and a half yards per play. They had just three points before that touchdown in the second half, and that was set up by the Drew Aller fumble in their own territory. Um, they had two three and outs on the on those other drives, and then a, a punt. Um, so, I mean. Testaments, I mean, like I said, complete compliment to their defense. They completely shut down Penn State. They controlled the game. The game really never felt in doubt. You know, I I, heading into that second half, never really felt like Penn State had a chance to come back and win that game. But offensively, for Michigan, I came away with more questions than answers, honestly. Uh, Because... You know, Ohio State and any team Michigan would play in the college football playoff, whether that be Georgia, Alabama, Texas, Florida State, Washington, Oregon, any of those teams, you know, Michigan, I mean, they're going to offer Michigan a much bigger challenge defensively than the, what they faced against Penn State. We knew coming into this game that this offense has been a ju- huge letdown. I mean, there was some hope from, from Nittany Lion fans that Drew Aller had kind of been unlocked, that they were going to be able to play a lot better than they did against Ohio state. And that just wasn't the case. It was the same exact team that Ohio state played. And um, honestly, it was the same exact outcome that we should have expected. But when Ohio, when Michigan goes and plays Ohio state at the end of the season, and if they win, if they get into the college football playoff, the teams that they'll play there, their defense is going to have a much bigger test on their hands. And I think their defense is great. I think it's better than it was last year. Not quite as good as the 2021 team, but still a great elite defense. I mean, they won't be able to hold those teams to to 10, 13, 15 points. It's going to be a bigger challenge for them, and their offense is going to have to open it up at least a little bit in order to win those games. And I think J.J. McCarthy will have to sit back under duress against some of those great defenses and pick defenses apart, at least to some extent, at least at some points in that game. And this was really their first chance, J.J. McCarthy's first chance this season to do that against a team that has similar talent to them. I mean, yeah, it's easy to sit back and pick apart UNLV, it's easy to pick apart Indiana, you know, which is they, which they've which they done all season long. Credit to Michigan. They've continued to dominate teams. But this was the first time to really kind of open up the offense and see what this passing game looks like against a team that has comparable talent to them. And they didn't do it. I mean, props to them. They were able to win the game without doing it. But like I said, I mean, these offenses they're going to face with Ohio State and potentially in the playoff or a much, much bigger challenge. And now J.J. McCarthy is going to head into that Ohio State game without having you know, had to go up against, really sit back and consistently throw the ball against an elite defense. And Ohio State's defense is just as good, if not better than Penn State's. You can bet they're going to get in JJ McCarthy's face, and he's going to have to make quick decisions, quick accurate decisions, and deliver accurate balls consistently with rush, with you know the pass rush in his face. That's going to happen. And against Penn State, figure this was at least an opportunity for him to kind of get used to the, that kind of stage. I mean, you can sit back and say, yeah, JJ McCarthy did it against Ohio State last year. This is a much, much different Ohio State defense than last year. So, I mean, that's ma- mainly my concern: is you know they're not going to be able to do what they did against Penn State to Ohio State they're not going to be able to line up with nine offensive linemen and you know run the ball and expect to find any sort of success. J.J. McCarthy is going to have to throw the ball and it's going to when they play, play Ohio State it's going to be the first time all season long that J.J. McCarthy has to consistently drop back and throw the ball against a team that has comparable talent to them and that it makes me a little nervous if I'm a Michigan fan um, but honestly uh, and I guess going back to the decision to run the ball 32 straight times like I said I mean great good for them able to win the ball um while pretty much showing their cards to penn state but it, it kind of makes me wonder if jj mccarthy was hurt a little bit because a lot of people are just assuming that their decision to run the ball 32 straight times was about making a statement was about flexing their muscles it's about i mean i've heard some people try to say it was about you know a testament to hardball wanted to show him you know the the kind of football they were playing i don't really buy that um i part of me thinks No, sure. Part of it may have been making making a statement and showing the country, like, hey, we this is who we are, and this is, um, you know, this is our identity, and we can line up and run the ball and still have a top ten win on the team. But part of me makes part of me wonders is if the reason they laid off the gas and why they were running the ball up the middle on third and longs consistently, was if J.J. McCarthy was hurt, because he did come up limping pretty bad on one play. They immediately ran the ball up the middle, and he limped off the field, and we didn't really get an opportunity to see if that injury lingered, because like I said, he was really just handing the ball off but no one seems to be talking about why Michigan stopped throwing the ball and like i said just assuming it was about making a statement and i'm not positive about that so you know keep an eye on jj mccarthy this weekend if he is 100% um so i mean that's my two cents about it i'm kind of playing devil's advocate for michigan but all in all their defense like i said looks better than last year offensive line still not quite as dominant as the past two years but still a very good unit donovan edwards has looked as good as he has all season long against penn state Blake Corum is still a great player. He's still Blake Corum. Same guy as last year. So I'm just playing devil's advocate for Michigan because you know the biggest game of their season is coming up in a couple weeks. But it's hard to say that wasn't a good win for Michigan. Um, Clearly one of the three best teams in the country, and I can't wait for November 25th, Michigan hosting Ohio State. Um, But then shifting to the other side of the spectrum, what was the nightmare for Penn State? Um, I think it's kinda easy to say they're essentially the New York Jets of college because as far as I'm concerned, I think Penn State has the best defense in the country. The way they kept that the the team in it on Saturday against Michigan, I was really impressed with the way they really shut down Michigan in that second half. Um but it was the offense yet again that let them down. And I'm not gonna, you know, let Penn State fans, you know, put this all on Drew Aller this follows on the coaching staff. And if you're going to blame players, I think Drew Aller is kind of lower on the list of, you know, who's to blame. Um, but I, I falls first and foremost on your uh, Mike Yurchich. They're now fired offensive coordinator and their receivers, which are Mike Yurchich's responsibility. Because, you know, Keiondre Lambert-Smith, he's a good receiver. He's got some great speed, but he's not a, a jump ball threat. He's not someone who you can consistently find the one-on-one match on one matchup with and know, oh yeah, Keiondre Lambert-Smith is winning that rep. He's a good complementary receiver to stretch the field, but he's not a true number one. And then you look at who else is on the field with him, guys like Dante Cephas, Malik McLean, Omari Evans, Harrison, Wallace, all of them have been disappointing. None of them have really developed and improved from last year. And Penn State as a whole hasn't been developing receivers the same. I mean, remember kind of um, in the past decade having guys like Allen Robinson and Chris Godwin, and they just haven't been doing that uh like they have in the past years and it's only gotten worse since Mike Yurchis has taken over in the past couple of years. And offensive line too has kind of been really disappointing this year because they, that unit made a tremendous improvement last season. They went from one of the worst units in the Big 10 in 2021 to an above average unit last year and they surpassed a lot of expectations they were a good offensive line and I think a lot of people including myself expected them to make another similar jump this year and become an elite offensive line and it hasn't I mean they've been pretty stagnant especially compared to how they played last year um so I mean just the personnel on the field for Penn State has not been playing well have not given Drew Aller a lot of opportunities certainly he has not been a great decision maker he has not been as accurate as people have hyped him up to be but I think he is kind of the least of Penn State's worries because I don't know how many quarterbacks in the country could be plugged into this Penn State offense and make it you know a a great unit and I put I mean I said it before the coaching more so than anything is what really lost Penn State this game I mean just bad decision after bad decision the two-point conversion Right before halftime, where they could have just kicked it, and made a 14 10. They're trying to chase points that early in the game, trying to make it a field goal game. Like, why? I get to an extent you're trying to grab momentum before the half, but you you have it. You just scored a touchdown. Your defense is still playing well, keeping you in it. Take the points. I mean, that kind of lingered around all game. The decision to go for it on their own 30-yard line in fourth and six, an obvious passing down situation where there's still close to five minutes left in the game. The way the defense was playing, I mean, they had just forced consecutive three and outs. Punt it back to Michigan. You know, your Penn State is – your defense is going to get a stop. Punt it back and try to, you know – reset again give your offense another opportunity instead they said okay this is the game fourth and sixth at our home 30 yard line we we get it and you know we continue on this drive or we don't get it games over and guess what they didn't get it because of another just play call that perplexed me I mean there wasn't just the, the concepts they ran it was you know Drew Aller was kind of sitting to his right and he had a check down and one guy going deep and just seemed like i don't know seemed like either a receiver ran the wrong route or it was just a bad play call but that was a horrible decision did not understand that and then you know michigan scored on the next play on that blake Corum 30 yard run so the game is kind of out of reach but they still went down and scored a touchdown but on that drive you know they started it off with a uh, a run after that pass interference that picked up a first down but then they ran it again and took 30 seconds off the clock for about six yards because they weren't prepared with another play after that so again just killed a lot of clock and made it even less likely if they did get into the end zone which they did that they'd be able to get the ball back and then finally the two-point conversion after they did score a touchdown like you kick the extra point make it a one possession game you maybe hope you can get get the ball back at least set up for a hail mary you know the game is not completely over at that point but instead they tried to go for two bring out that weird formation where there's one offensive lineman and like six guys bunched up to the top it just didn't make any sense, and it seemed like, I don't, I don't know, maybe that was just a giant FU from Mike Yurcic because he could tell that he was going to get fired after that performance, but it I mean, just the decision to go for two alone was weird, and then that play call to roll out, that's what you come up with, it just didn't didn't make any sense. I don't know. From top to bottom, offense, you know, the players on the field did not play well, but the coaches did not put them in a good position whatsoever. I mean, Mike Yurcic obviously fired Sunday, didn't even make it a full 24 hours after that game ended. Uh, He had to go, and I don't think there's a Penn State fan in the world that would disagree with me, and it'll be fascinating to see how Penn State comes out against Rutgers next week because, you know, their fans boot him off the field. They lost their offensive coordinator. Their head coach has been getting drugged, dragged through the mud all week long, possibly being connected to other jobs. Drew Aller's confidence has to at least be wavering after the way he's played against Ohio State, and now Michigan, and the way it seems like a whole fan base is kind of giving up on him. All of their preseason goals are now out the window. They're pretty much just playing for a nice little New Year's, New Year's Six Bowl game again, which is not what fans signed up for this season. Um, so I think if you're Penn State, it's really easy to throw in the towel and kind of give up on this season and maybe lose to a team who certainly won't have any issue getting up for this game. I mean, Rutgers, I know they just got the, the breaks beat off them by Iowa. That was not a good game offensively, but y- you know, Greg Shiano is going to have them ready to play that game. So this weekend, I know it doesn't mean a whole lot as far as, you know, having a successful 2023 season. That's kind of out the window for Penn State, but. It's going to be a testament to the leadership on this team and the culture that James Franklin has established at Penn State, how they come out come out against Rutgers. Um, and as far as their new offensive coordinator, I think we're just going to have to wait to see, you know, who, who else opens up? Who gets fired? Who leaves? Um, who throws their hats into the, you know, coaching carousel ring? Because now it sounds like Chip Kelly is going to be on the table. He sounds like he's getting fired from UCLA. And I think that's a coach that Penn State should throw a blank check at to come be their offensive coordinator. If they really want to compete next year, get into the 12 team playoff and compete for a national championship. Um, you know, there's Sean Lewis, offensive coordinator for Colorado, who had a great track record, but kind of inexplicably lost his play calling duty. So you figure he might be kind of upset, might be looking for a change of scenery. Joe Brady, um, you know, for the Bills, maybe he's looking for a return to the college game. So those are a couple other big names to kind of um, keep an eye on. But there's an extensive list that Penn State could go after. Um, but ultimately, I mean, getting back to the game on Saturday... I don't think there's much to say about Penn State other than this season has simply been a disappointment and maybe one of the biggest disappointments in Penn State football history when you consider what Penn State fans' expectations were before the season and then the products that they've put on the field in their two biggest games of the year. I mean, Drew Aller and Mike Yurcich were supposed to be the reasons that Penn State got over the hump and could beat Ohio State and Michigan and win the Big Ten and get to the college football playoff. The defenses have more than held up its end of the bargain. But against Penn State, I mean, against Ohio State and Michigan, Penn State had a combined 478 yards of total offense and at 3.8 yards play. And that illustrates it perfectly, just how horrible. I mean, it's not even like a disappointing offense. This has been an objectively bad offense for the majority of the season. It's a disappointing day for Penn State, disappointing season. Um, Just got to hope that you guys, players can get up to play Rutgers, that the, you know, you don't start to see fractures in this culture. Hopefully guys, you know, keep their heads on the shoulder. Leadership steps up. They uh, have a good end to the season. And yeah, just kind of keep an eye on who they hire as their new offensive coordinator because that could really be the difference between Penn State kind of falling off or staying in the thick of the playoff race and being a a, a real player in the Big Ten for years to come. So it will be fascinating to see how um, to kind of track that job as we enter the offseason. So we're going to kind of stay in the spirit of disappointing performances and, you know, I guess underachieving coaches right now. So we head over to Madison uh, to figure out what is going on with Wisconsin. I mean, they just got. I mean, just manhandled by Northwestern on Saturday. Ended up losing 24-10, to 10, but that score does not begin to illustrate how badly they got beaten. I mean, they allowed Northwestern to convert their first 10 third downs of the game. They let Northwestern um, score on their first four drives of the game. It was 23 to. Th- Twenty-four to three at halftime. Wisconsin didn't get there that touchdown at the end until there was a handful of seconds left on the clock. Um, I mean, they Wisconsin. I mean, Northwestern wasn't able to move the ball very well in the second half, but it really did not matter because I mean, this all, Wisconsin offense looked as anemic as as it could possibly get. I mean, Wisconsin as a whole team just came out as flat as possible, with seemingly no drive, no desire to win the game, no effort. I mean, they just got dog walked. By a team, you know, all the respect in the world to Northwestern. Love David Braun, who finally got the interim tag removed off. Now the full-time head coach of that team. Love what he's done. One of the best coaching jobs in all of college football. So all the respect in, in the world to Northwestern. But Wisconsin just lost at home to a team that wasn't expected to win more than three games this season. I mean, Northwestern was more physical. They were more energetic. They made fewer mistakes. And like I said, just manhandled Wisconsin. After the game, Luke Fickle called it disgusting. Hunter Wohler called the team soft. He said that this was rock bottom for them. And many players were talking about how you know they'll find out who really wants to be there, which is kind of a very cryptic thing to say. And a lot of different players said it. It was a very kind of succinct message across the board. And everything was really alluding to just that lack of effort that we saw on the field. And it was acknowledged by the players and the coaching staff after the game. And it kind of feels as if the players really just quit on the season. And listen... I want to trust the process so badly because I really like Luke Fickle and I think the Big Ten is better when Wisconsin is good. And, you know, growing pains are to be expected. And in hindsight, I think expecting a team to win who, who had to do a complete 180 from last year and win nine, 10 plus games, win the West this year. I think in hindsight, those expectations may have been a little, little too lofty, a little too optimistic, especially considering how flawed of a team they were last year. So, you know, part of me wants to say just, just hold, hold the brakes on, you know, bringing down the hammer on Luke Fickle. Growing pains are going to happen. Got to see, you know, wait for him to get his own players in here. Got to see how it turns out the second year. So part of me wants to just trust the process. But part of me is also deeply, deeply concerned, because I can't think of any successful coaching regimes that started off with players quitting on the season, and displaying the utter lack of effort that we saw on Saturday. I certainly have never seen a Wisconsin be as soft as they were on Saturday, and frankly for a lot of the season, um, in my lifetime. Granted, I haven't been around for 50 years, but I mean... I, Wisconsin, if there's if there's one thing you can count on is it's, they're going to be a tough football team. That they're going to bring their A game every ta- every single game, every single rep, and they're going to be a hard hard nosed team. And they just haven't been that this year. And like I said, things could change. Maybe he just needs to get more of his players into this program. I don't know what his coaching style is like as a head coach, but he made a lot of changes, a lot of fundamental changes to this program. You know, on the offensive and de- defensive side of the ball, um, really completely new concepts. That they're running on both sides of the ball so you know certainly I'm, there are players on this team that didn't jive with what he was doing they probably butt heads so you know he, he did make a lot of changes i'm sure the players didn't mesh with it all so you know he has a second recruiting class coming in the first that's that's entirely his you know the prevalence of the transfer portal to be able to you know get players out of the program that may be a detriment to them and bring in new programs that really fit uh your culture so, you know, next year he should have a lot more of his guys, you know, quote-unquote. Um, that should really help things out. But Wisconsin football has a standard. You know, they're not Ohio State, Michigan, or Penn State, but they are one of the better programs in the Big Ten. And what they've put on the field this year is well below the standard that they have established over the past 20 to 30 years. And I think the next two games will be pivotal for fans' patience with, with Luke Fickle and kind of how much they're willing to tolerate next year. Because they have games between Nebraska and Minnesota. They're five and five right now. Wisconsin is, I think them finishing five and seven is just as likely as seven and five because, you know, Nebraska and Minnesota are somehow are still in the thick of the big 10 West race. Um, you know, they'll need Iowa to drop their last two games, but that's still very possible. They, they play Illinois and Nebraska to f- finish things out. And I'll talk about this later, but Cooper DeJean is out for the year. So obviously, um, you know, Iowa losing their last two games of the season is certainly on the table. So I think with that in mind, Nebraska and Minnesota still have plenty to play for. They're going to be get they they won't have an issue getting up to play Wisconsin. Meanwhile, Wisconsin, I mean, they're kind of dead in the water. They're pretty much out of the West Big 10 West race. So But at the same time, a 7-5 season with a win over your arch rival in the finale and then maybe a bowl win against another Power 5 team to get to 8 wins, an 8-5 season all of a sudden doesn't sound too bad considering what's been going on with them the past few weeks. It offers some positive momentum for the program as they get head into, like I said before, a pivotal 2024 season. Uh, So, you know, they could try to right the ship and they could try to maybe you know erase the memory heading into the offseason of what we just saw on Saturday. But at the same time, if they come out and if they play the way they we saw on Saturday over these next two weeks, and we just see more lack of effort, we see them getting pushed around. We see them, you know, Nebraska and Minnesota be more physical than them. And they finish five and seven miss out on a bowl game entirely. Madison's going to be on fire. And, you know, Luke Fickle is going to have to show major improvement next season, or he will risk getting booted in just his second season. Cause like I said, Wisconsin does have a standard that they are just not even close to hitting right now. And so even though they aren't a player in the big 10 West anymore, Wisconsin is, I'm really keeping my eye on the Badgers, these next two games to see what direction this program is really heading in. Can they turn things around, get some positive momentum and give fans a reason to really believe in Luke Fickle, or is it going to be more of the same? Are they going to miss out on a bowl game entirely? And I said, you know, Penn State this year was one of their most disappointing seasons maybe in history. I think Wisconsin going 5-7 and this year would be right up there too, as far as one of the most disappointing football seasons in Wisconsin history. So um, it'll be very interesting to see how they respond to this shellacking, and if they can try to get on the right um, right page and right this ship towards the end of the season. So we're going to stay with the theme of bad offenses and disappointing play and perhaps underachieving coaches. And we go to Nebraska, whose offense has reached a, low, a new low point under offensive coordinator Marcus Satterfield against Maryland. Just had another painful, painful performance to watch. Lost 13-10. to 10. Heinrich Harburg, their quarterback, he wasn't playing well, but he got knocked out of the game with an injury. Jeff Sims had to come in again, and he just sucked again. Looked like he picked up right where he left off against Colorado. They had to turn to Chubba Purdy, Brock Purdy's younger brother. A lot of people forget he was a former four star. He missed a lot of the season with injury, but he was healthy this week. So maybe, you know, maybe he could be a spark plug. Maybe he could kind of, um, you know, offer some momentum for this team. But that did not happen. He did not play well either. It seemed apparent to me, at least early on when he got into the game, that the coaching staff did not trust him throwing the ball. But despite this, despite how horrible their offensive was today and all season long, they were right in the game with Maryland. They were tied at 10. Uh, they went on. Their best drive of the day to get inside the 10 yard line with under four minutes to play. And they ended up facing a third and goal. I want to say it was from the seven yard line. So, you know, kind of obvious passing down situation if you're trying to get into the end zone. But like I said, their defense had been playing very, very well. Tied at 10. A field goal, I mean, they could run the ball, milk the clock down to about three minutes, or force Maryland to use a timeout and take a three point lead with maximum three and a half minutes left in the game, depending on whether Maryland would have used the timeout or left. Seems like a pretty good bargain, considering how well their defense has been playing. Instead, Marcus Satterfield decided to throw the ball. Again, from third and goal from the seven-yard line, when a field goal would have given them a lead with only uh, you know, three minutes and change left in the game. And as you might have guessed, Trevor Purdy threw an interception, gave the ball back to Maryland, and they went on a 75-yard drive to set up a chip-shot field goal, for the win and I think that was the final straw in a lot of fans minds I certainly did not understand that decision I thought it was egregious it was irresponsible like you've already proven that you don't trust really any of the three quarterbacks to throw the ball and all of a sudden on a third and goal from the seven yard line you're going to trust Trevor Purdy to try to get into the end zone and it was a bad interception I genuinely don't know really where he was going with the ball um but yeah, I mean, it was just an egregious mistake, I think, by Marcus Satterfield to let him throw that ball. And it was just a perfect illustration of, of where this team is, at least offensively. And there's not a whole lot of positives to take, take away from really any position group on the offensive side of the ball. And like I said, I think it was the last straw with for a lot of Nebraska fans, forced a lot of people to ask Matt Rule after the game about Marcus Satterfield's uh, job security. And Matt Rule said it himself. He's not firing Marcus Satterfield. He will be around for year two, which I get to some degree. I mean, Matt Rule is trying to rebuild a program here, and I just don't, you know, firing someone after the first year and kind of causing more unrest, causing, you know, more disturbance in that program probably isn't what they need. But at the same time, it's really, really hard for me to have faith that this offense can get better next year. Because, I mean, really, the defensive turnaround has been astonishing. I think one of the biggest surprises of the entire college football season. And I think if you told me at the beginning of the season that the Nebraska defense would be right up there with Iowa and Rutgers as one of the five best defenses in the Big Ten, I would have thought Nebraska wins eight-plus games, maybe cracks the top 25, at least at some point during the season. But the offense has just been miserable all season long. Bottom three in scoring and every single passing statistic you can find in the Big Ten um and you know like i said i i get matt rule keeping satterfield around but i'm just curious how this offense gets much better next year because there have not been really any positives to hang your hat on from any position group um like i said every position group has underperformed in my eyes the offensive line the quarterbacks most certainly the receiver room thought marcus washington was going to maybe have a big game i know they've been littered with injuries um the tight end group. Group was supposed to have a lot of talent that we just have not seen come to fruition. Running back room has also been beaten up by injuries, but you know, I thought I thought maybe Anthony Grant was a was an answer there, and it just hasn't been. So it's just there's a whole lot of problems there, and uh, problems that I don't really think Marcus Satterfield is going to be able to fix. But who do I know? I mean, Matt Murrell is being paid millions of dollars for a reason. He's the head coach there. He made the decision. So Nebraska fans, I'm sorry, you will have to suffer through another season of Marcus Satterfield, but. I'm starting to understand why so many South Carolina fans were happy when he left to take this job, and he's certainly going to have a, a tight leash next season. And I think if you know we we see this same exact offense get trotted out next year for the first three, four, or five games, Satterfield won't make it through at the end of the year in 2024. Uh, but we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Nebraska fans, I'm sorry, you just you know now, so don't get your hope up that Marcus Satterfield is sticking around next season. So I've kind of dampered the mood enough talking about how disappointing Penn State, Wisconsin, and Nebraska have been. Going to end my my final little thought on week 12 of the Big Ten football season. It's going to be much more positive. Got to give some appreciation for Illinois quarterback John Paddock. He went 24-36 for 507 yards. That's 14 yards in an attempt and four touchdowns against Indiana, 148-45 In overtime and he carried all the momentum over from last week where he came in for Luke Altmaier in that final drive against Minnesota went three for three for 85 yards and a touchdown and yeah just carried it all into this game he let it sling he played excellent football from beginning to end I was really impressed with just his decision making his arm strength his anticipation and just the way he was able to operate this offense because I knew this wide receiver room was really talented and he's finally allowing this offense to open up and utilize guys like Casey Washington and Isaiah Williams. Um, you know, it feels like he's kind of just caught magic in a bottle right now. Hard to tell how sustainable this is, but I mean, man, it's, you can't help but think how differently their season would be going right now if he had been playing all season long. You know, if they were able to push the ball downfield and open up, open up the run game a little bit more like they did on Saturday. I mean, they, I mean, they're still in the thick of the Big Ten West race, but it feels like, if they've been playing this way all season long, they'd be in control of the West. And really just how can you not love John Paddock? If you don't know a lot about him, he's a sixth year transfer who finally he spent five years at Ball State last year, finally got his shot as their starting quarterback, played pretty well, decided to transfer. He had opportunities to go to other schools where he would have had a starting spot essentially locked up, but he wanted to go to Illinois because he loved the school. Um, you know, his grandpa, his dad, his uncle all went there, went there as a as a walk on. Um, and his interview after the game was so great, just talking about the things he's overcome to get there. And he's just saying that he was just going to let the ball um, you know, let the ball rip, let it rip, sling it around, not play with any reservations because what does he have to lose? And you can just tell how much that game meant to him. Um, so if you haven't watched that post-game interview, it's about 30 seconds, really worth the watch. Um, but on the flip side, I mean, Brett Bielema announced today that Luke Altmaier is going to start against Iowa. And I get it. I mean, Brett Bielema said earlier this week, he's never been the type of coach that allows a player to lose his job to injury. And I respect that. Um, I respect that notion, but, and it, typically I would agree with it, but I just, I don't understand it. Um, I really think he's making a mistake by not starting John Paddock this weekend, because I mean, first of all, I mean, John Paddock is a sixth year quarterback. He's not coming back next year. He's, he's used up his eligibility. So, just because Luke Altmaier doesn't play these last couple of games doesn't mean he's there, not their starting quarterback moving forward, and he is the answer, and I would hope that he'd be able to communicate that to Luke Altmaier, but in my head is you're going up against really tough defense in Iowa, and I'll preview this game more in depth here in a little bit. Um, but I mean, you got to expect this offense is, is not going to have that same momentum in this game that they did against Indiana. So in my mind, you put John Paddock out there, let him let this momentum ride. Maybe he is as good as we've really seen. Maybe he can keep this going. Maybe he can drop 30 points on Iowa. Who knows? I mean, the way he's playing, it certainly looks possible. Let him go out there and try to carry this momentum. And hey, If he goes out a few drives and it's just not working, if he's just not connecting with his receivers, okay, then you put Luke Altmaier back in, let him regain the reins, and let this be his team. I feel like that is a much easier transition to make than now he's trotting Luke Altmaier out there against probably the toughest—I mean, yeah—the toughest defense they've seen since Penn State earlier in the year. And throwing him into the fire, and you know, I mean, if he if Luke Altmaier goes out there, plays a quarter, quarter and a half, and does nothing, and gets gets beat up, misses throws, the offense doesn't, you know, barely picks up any first downs. I feel like Brett Bielema is going to be forced to try to put John Paddock in there to to spark this offense up. And first of all, I think you're ripping away the momentum that John Paddock had, not allowing him to prepare as the starter and get those first team reps this weekend, this week, but. Then all of a sudden you you know you put Luke Altmaier out there as a starter and then you pull him. I think that's how you really mess with Luke Altmaier. That's how you make you know at the very least mess with his confidence, but maybe make him not like the program anymore and be like, oh, so I'm not your quarterback. Okay, I'm gone. I mean that's how you make kind of sour this relationship with your quarterback. I feel like it wouldn't be that hard to sit him down and be like, listen, you're our quarterback moving forward, but you saw on Saturday what John Paddock did was one of the greatest passing performances we've had in the history of this football program. We have to stay with him. We have to give him a chance. Be prepared to go because if he if he doesn't continue this momentum, you're getting back in there. And either way, once the season ends, you are our quarterback. You are our quarterback moving forward for as long as you want to be here. I don't think that's too difficult of a conversation to have and Luke Altmaier you know from what I've seen he seems to be a you know a bright young kid he seems to have his head on his shoulders so I just think it's a lot easier to put John Paddock out there if it doesn't work out put Altmaier back in there than it is to put Luke Altmaier in the, out there when the offense inevitably struggles against Iowa and you want to put John Paddock in there it's going to be really hard to then turn back to Luke uh, Altmaier after you make that decision so You know, I really hoped that John Paddock was going to start this Saturday, thought at the very least, Brett Bielema would kind of keep it a secret, keep Io on their toes, um, and I think fig- I would hope that a lot of Iowa- Illinois fans agree with me that John Paddock should be starting. Uh, I thought that it would give him the best chance to beat Iowa and also mitigate any risk of Malt- Altmeyer getting uncomfortable with the program, shattering his confidence and wanting to leave. Um, but Brett Bielema sticking by his guns, st- sticking by his philosophy, and he's going to trot Luke Altmeyer out there. So we'll preview that game more in depth. But I just first wanted to give John Paddock his flowers for what he's done. The past game and plus one drive, and it's a shame I think that he's not starting, and I think it's a mistake by Brett Bielema. Before we get into looking towards week 13 in the Big Ten, uh gonna move outside the conference, and we're gonna look at the Heisman watch. And in my eyes, I, I feel like most people would agree with me here, I think four finalists have kind of been solidified in my mind. Obviously, with two more weeks left in the regular season and the conference championships. wrench could always be thrown in here. You know, we're a great performance by someone else or a bad performance by one of these four guys from, I guess, mixing things up. But I'd be shocked if there weren't four finalists for the Heisman and and they weren't these four guys. So Michael Penix from Washington, Bo Nix, who's the betting favorite right now for Oregon, Jaden Daniels of LSU and Marvin Harrison Jr. from Ohio State. And if you're curious, we can run through the statistics they have right now. They've all played 10 games. None of them have really missed, um, missed any time with injury or anything like that. Uh, Michael Penix, 68% completion, 3,533 yards, 30 total touchdowns, 7 interceptions, 10.3 yards in attempt. Bo Nix, 78% completion percentage, like 10% more than Michael Penix, uh, 3,256 total yards, just a little bit below Michael Penix, 34 total touchdowns, only two interceptions, nine uh, nine 9.4 yards in attempt. So, I mean, kind of there, it seems like Michael Penix has the leg up in some other statistics while Nix does in others. Kind of feels like that they, they will be heading on a collision course in the Pac-12 championship. Kind of feel like whoever wins that game will have the leg up on the other. In, in, the, in the Heisman race. And then go to Jaden Daniels, who has 71% completion percentage, 4,082 total yards, 38 total touchdowns, both of those far surpass what Nixon um, Penix have done, four interceptions, and 11.6 yards in attempt. Um, That's currently tied with Kyler Murray for the second most yards and attempt in college football history. And the reason I'm throwing in yards and attempt in there is a statistic I love for quarterbacks. I think it just gives a very good sense of how efficient the passing game is. Um, And then Marvin Harrison, obviously, has 59 catches, 1,063 yards, and 13 total touchdowns. So like I said, figure Michael Penix and Bo Nix, um, the winner in the Pac-12, honestly, assuming that they both beat Oregon State because Oregon State plays Washington and Oregon to finish the season. Assuming they both went out and it's 11-1 Oregon versus 12-0 Washington in the Pac-12 title, my guess would be the winner of that game, um, would be the favorite heading into the Heisman ceremony, it would probably be my choice to win it. Um, but if one of those teams lose to Oregon State and then win the Pac-12, it would really open it up. Um, for the rest of, I mean, for Jaden Daniels and Marvin Harrison and maybe a few other candidates. And Jaden Daniels, I think a lot of people would agree he's probably the best quarterback in college football right now. I've said it um, before. I don't know if this LSU team is even a 500 football team without Jaden Daniels. That's how much he means and that's how talented he is. He certainly has the most impressive statistics out of the bunch. Um, But it's just hard to imagine a player on a three loss team would lose, would win the Heisman over three other players who could be playing for the college football playoff. I feel like Heisman voters uh, tend to really favor team success. I mean, prioritize that first. Um, So, I mean, I would just be, I think... Ohio State, Oregon, Washington would kind of have to fall apart a little bit for Jaden Daniels to really win. But he's still got two games left. I mean, he could still make those statistics even more eye popping. So you definitely don't want to keep him out. He's certainly earned his spot in the Heisman ceremony, and he should be a finalist. I just have a hard time seeing uh, the quarterback of a nine and three team win the Heisman over someone who also has great statistics, who's you know thirteen and zero, and and going to be competing for a national championship. And that brings me to Marvin uh Marvin Harrison Jr., who I think has a legitimate shot at the Heisman. I think a lot of people are kind of counting him out. He's a nice story. He'll be the he'll get to the ceremony. He could be a finalist, but he has no shot of winning. But I mean, depending on how this season goes for Ohio State, he could really have as good of a Heisman moment as anyone. Because I mean if he has big a big game against Michigan in a win for Ohio State and then again in the Big Ten championship, I mean, imagine Marvin Harrison has 180 yards and two touchdowns against Michigan. One of the best defenses in the country in the biggest game of the entire college football season. All eyes will be on that game. It's going to be the most watched college football game this season, at least until the playoff. Um, Just imagine he goes off for 180 and two touchdowns, which seems reasonable given how talented he is and how many targets he gets. Um, And, you know, he has maybe a game-winning touchdown in that game, something like that. I mean, that would be as good of a Heisman moment as anyone has this season. And then, you know, he replicates it again in the Big Ten Championship. All of a sudden, Ohio State, 13-0, could be number one in the country. Marvin Harrison has, you know, 1,500 yards, 16, 18 touchdowns on the season. You know, he's going to throw his name in the ring. So, um, As far, I mean, it's hard to predict right now. You know, all these players have huge games coming up, and that's really going to be the determining factor in who wins the Heisman. But in my mind, those are the four finalists. I'm going to be shocked if it ends up not being that case. And I think this Heisman race should be one of the more exciting ones in recent memory. And whoever wins the Heisman certainly will have earned it. So can't wait to see how that race shakes out over the next three weeks. I also want to do a little pulse check on the college football playoff, um, mainly because I think there's two scenarios that could be real nightmares for the college football playoff committee where it puts them in a lose lose situation. And um, I guess I'll tackle those first. So, um, one, I think it may have been surfacing around Reddit that I think is really interesting. Um, the first scenario is where we have, you know, undefeated ACC champion Florida State. And an undefeated Ohio State or Michigan. So 13-0 ACC champion, 13-0 Big Ten champion. They have their spots in the playoff locked. But then imagine, you know, Oregon wins out. They're 12-1 Pac-12 champion. Texas wins out. They're 12-1 and Big 12 champion. Alabama wins out, beats or uh, Georgia in the SEC champion. They're a 12-1 SEC champion. And that leaves 12-1 Georgia non-champion. That means there's two spots in the playoff for those four teams. 12-1 and Oregon, Texas, Alabama. And Georgia, who goes in? So, if I were the committee, I mean, I feel like first, first and foremost, Oregon would absolutely deserve a spot in that playoff. I mean, in the fourteen playoff in this scenario, I mean, avenging the only loss they had all season, which was on the road to Washington in a game that really was a coin flip; either team could have won that game. I think avenging that loss, the way they've played in the back half of the season, just annihilating teams. Bo Nix is playing as good a football as we have seen in college football over the past couple seasons. So I think Oregon will have more than earned their spot. And that leaves then one spot for either Texas, Alabama, or Georgia. And listen, I can't put anything past the committee. I mean, everyone knows the SEC bias is alive and well in that, in that committee room. But I just can't imagine a scenario where 12-1 and Georgia gets in. I mean, their best wins are over Ole Miss and Georgia. They have Tennessee coming up, which is somehow ranked in the top 25. I cannot fathom that. But, I mean, that win against Missouri was good, but I don't think Ole Miss is a great team. I don't think that's a quality enough win to hang your hat on and be like, yeah, we're one of the four best teams. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that Alabama-Georgia game is the playoff starts early for you guys. I mean, win and you're in. Win and you earned your spots. to compete for a national championship. You lost. Sorry, that was your chance. <laughs> I mean, simple as that. And they're the only team in this scenario that hasn't won their conference championship. They play in, I think, one of the more overrated divisions in college football. Um, I don't know. I just have a hard time seeing how you could put Georgia like above Texas. You certainly can't put them above Alabama who just beat them. So um, that would give us a debate between Texas and Alabama for that fourth spot. And listen, I mean, I respect head-to-head as much as the next person. And if Texas had been blowing teams out this entire time, I would still probably believe that Alabama is the better team, but I would still say, hey, Texas beat them head-to-head on the road. They have been dominating the Big 12. They're doing what they're supposed to. Yeah, that loss in a rivalry game against Oklahoma was you know hasn't aged particularly well but i don't think that you can completely discount their win over alabama because of that and you know if texas has had been dominating teams you know and not having close games against tcu against kansas state against houston i would say yeah texas deserves to be in the playoff even though i think alabama if they played it right now would beat them even though i think alabama is playing better but i mean Texas is just playing a very dangerous game. And even with Quinn is back, I mean, they were in a tight game against TCU. They did not look good. And it's just, you know, the reason we went away from computers and, you know, instilled a, a committee with humans making these decisions is to be able to look at, evaluate these teams and decide who is the better team. And I think the way that Texas has just kind of been playing with their food and going in, you know, playing these four quartered games against bad teams. Meanwhile, Alabama is the most improved team in all of college football. They're a different, completely different team than than in September when they played. And listen, I'm a Big Ten homer. I would love a scenario where there's no SEC team in the college football playoff. But I have to be objective here, and I'm just thinking in this scenario. I would probably say Alabama deserves to be in over Texas despite that that head to head. And I know, I mean that it would certainly be a difficult decision for the the college football playoff committee to make to discount that head to head that Texas has over Alabama because you can make the argument why are we playing the games then? But at the same time, like I said, Texas just has not been impressive and this is assuming they continue to play with their food. You know, maybe they go in beat Iowa State this weekend, a bad Iowa State team, by a field goal. Whoever they play in the Big 12 title game, maybe that ends up being decided on the last possession of the game. And they're just kind of messing around with these bad teams. Meanwhile, Alabama will have had the best win in college football, beating 12-0 Georgia in the SEC championship. And I think if that's the case, I mean, Alabama certainly would have cemented their flag as one of the four best teams in the playoff. And I think it is reminds me a lot about Ohio State in 2014. Because that season, a lot of people could point to the fact that Ohio State lost at home by 14 points to a bad Virginia Tech team. But at the same time, the team that Ohio State was at the end of that 2014 season was not the same team that they were at the beginning of the season. It's the same case with Alabama here. I mean, yeah, you ha- you can point to that head-to-head. That game did happen, and it matters. But the team that Alabama is right now is not the team that they were at the beginning of the season. So, I mean, it- it's an impossible decision for for the committee to make if this scenario in this scenario but if this happens i would go with oregon and alabama as the three and four in this scenario so moving away from that scenario uh, one scenario that no one's really talking about right now is the path that louisville has for the college football playoff because it is there and it is very possible because really the only thing that louisville has to do in order to get to the playoff is first of all win out you know, win their last two regular season games and beat a likely 12-0 Florida State in the ACC championship. That's a big ask, would be a huge upset, but it's in their control, so win out. Then the only th- the only thing they have to worry about then is, you know, hope Georgia beats Alabama. So to lost Alabama, they'd be out of the conversation and hope Texas slips up one more time, which is very possible. Like I said, they travel at Iowa State this weekend. I might be picking Iowa State as my upset special this week. And you got to figure whoever they play in the Big 12 title game, that's you know going to be a tight game. So I think it's more than reasonable to think the way that Texas has been playing the past few weeks, um, more than reasonable to think that Texas can lose so because you know if that happens you know georgia beats alabama so they're eliminated 13-0 georgia is in you have your big 10 champion you have the Pac 12 champion and then yeah, the fourth team would be louisville because you know texas lost there they're, um they'd be two losses out of the race alabama's out of the race that would leave louisville that's all that has to happen the unlikeliest part about this whole scenario is louisville winning out and beating florida state um so i mean granted they, i mean it is all in their control though. I mean, the path for Louisville to get to the college football playoff is right there and it could very well happen. I'm just surprised that no one's really been talking about that. I think mainly because a lot of people assume that they're going to get dog walked by Florida state, which could happen, but Florida state has not been particularly dominant either. Um, Then the last scenario I want to talk about is the path for two big 10 teams, which, you know, this is a big 10 podcast. Sure. A lot of big 10 fans out there would like to see that. Um, But I think there's really only one scenario where this could happen. First of all, I think Ohio State has to lose to Michigan just because they have that Notre Dame win. It's certainly not incredible by any means at this point, but it's more than Michigan has. I think if one of those teams is going to get to the playoff as an 11-1 non-conference champion, it's going to be Ohio State because of that Notre Dame win. Um you know like i said, i think an 111 michigan would have little to no shot especially considering the investigation going around you got to imagine if there's if it's between michigan and another team for that first spot got to figure the playoff committee might want to go with the team that might not be looking at vacated wins this year. It is not under a massive NCAA investigation. Um, but anyway, so in this scenario, you have uh, 13-0 Michigan. They have their spot locked. So how do we get 11-1 Ohio State back into the playoff like last year? Well, I think you would need you know 13-0 Georgia. Again, they take care of Alabama. Get them out of here. 13-0 Michigan is the second spot. 13-0 Florida State. And then you would need Texas to lose a game. You know, So they have that second loss. Get out of there. And then you would have to hope that Oregon State is able to knock off either Oregon or Washington over these next couple weeks. And whoever they do knock off then goes on to win the Pac-12. And that's the scenario that's a little tricky. I know Oregon State's a very tough team. They have a great defense. DJ Uyunglele is playing um, the best football of his career. They're more than capable, I think, of knocking off one of those two teams, but You know, I think if they're going to knock off a team, it's probably going to be Washington. And I just think Oregon is playing so much better than they are right now. I have a hard time seeing Washington overcoming that loss and then overcoming that loss and then beating Oregon a second time. So that's the the scenario that makes this a little unlikely. But I mean, it's not off the table getting two Big Ten teams. I mean, thirteen to no Georgia that seems reasonable. Thirteen to no Florida State seems reasonable, and having Texas lose a game, like I said before, very reasonable. So just got to hope for some classic Pac-12 wonkiness, which hasn't really happened this year. But if it does happen, we could see two Big Ten teams in the playoff for a second straight year. And now we can get into previewing week 13 of the Big Ten's football season. And I'll start off by giving a more in-depth preview of Illinois versus Iowa. And let me tell you, I prepared my notes yesterday for this game and a huge wrench has just been thrown into it because i I didn't expect Luke Altmaier to be announced as to starter today. And I also did not expect Iowa's best player, Cooper DeGene, to be out for the season. Apparently he broke his foot in practice today to be determined if he'll be available for a bowl game, but he will be out for the last two regular season games and the Big Ten championship game if they get there. So really what I was expecting in this game just got flipped on its head. Um, and it's going to be a little bit harder for me to kind of, uh, to break this game down. Even though Luke Altmaier is now the starting quarterback again instead of John Paddock, I still think this aerial attack is the strength of the Illinois offense with guys like Isaiah Williams, Pat Bryant, Casey Washington all playing as well as they have all season long and especially considering the gaping hole in Iowa's secondary uh, with Cooper DeGene out. I do think kind of a key for Illinois in trying to win this game is testing that secondary. yeah, I think even with, like I said, Luke Altmaier as the quarterback now, I still think this is probably the best aerial attack that Iowa will have faced since Penn State back in September, and they're doing it without their best player. So um I'm interested to see now without their best cornerback again, like how they react to a lot of these, you know, Three wide receiver sets that Illinois is going to run because that's not something they've seen a lot of recent games against, like, you know, Minnesota and Northwestern and Wisconsin. Iowa, I mean, Illinois is going to be able to spread the ball out a little bit more. So, how for Iowa, when Illinois has the ball, how are they going to line up against these three receiver sets? I mean, you figured Cooper DeGene and Jamari Harris were going to have, you know, lock two of those guys down. And it's going to be a-, a case of are they going to drop back in a lot of zone or are they going to have to have a nickelback out there to re- acknowledge that third receiver? But now with Cooper DeGene out, it is like, how is Iowa exactly going to match up against these three really, really good receivers? Because this is a type of game that they have, are not going to be used to playing whatsoever. A game, a team that's willing to spread them out a little bit more. So I'm really curious now how, I mean, just about that. Iowa secondary how they handle that nickel spot like I said they could play a lot of zone I thought you know with John Paddock if he was the quarterback he had shown that he was able to find the soft spots Luke Altmaier probably a little bit less comfortable doing that so I expect a lot more zone and not very much man-to-man especially with Cupid Dajim being out Um, so I think Illinois if they want if they want to move the ball with some success, they're going to have to open up this offense and if that means Luke Altmaier throws a couple interceptions, makes some mistakes, so be it, that's you you gotta lose the game that way. You gotta be willing to take risks because I don't think that they're gonna be able to run the ball, you know, 30, 40 times and expect to come out of this game with a victory. So You know, when Illinois has the ball, I honestly, it's hard for me to really predict what's going on. (laughs) Like, does Luke Altmaier still have his confidence? You know, with John Paddock breathing down his neck, is this Iowa defense going to be the same without its best player? So I'm fascinated to see what happens with Illinois has the ball because I could see them being able to put up some points, but I could also see Luke Altmaier's confidence kind of getting shattered when he comes out and um, inevitably struggles against this Iowa defense, and then they turned to John Paddock, who maybe they can't find that same spark. So it could go either way. Really interested for that. And even though I do have some, you know, reserved optimism for this Illinois passing attack, even with Luke Altmaier in there instead of John Paddock, it really won't matter at all if this offensive line doesn't hold up. So they only had gave up one sack against Indiana with John Paddock in their last game. And part of that was because Paddock showed a surprising ability to maneuver the pocket and extend plays. And Luke Altmaier is more mobile than John Paddock. He can certainly scramble. He can reel off some big runs, and he can throw on the run pretty well too. But I'm not sure if he has that same kind of pocket presence that uh, that Paddock displayed last week, and if he has that same kind of alarm bell going off in his head, knowing when to bail on the play, when to get out of there and avoid the sack. Illinois' offensive line has played a lot better in the second half of the season. I mean, they were one of the worst offensive lines in all of the Power Five in the first half of the season, so it was a low bar to get above, but they did. They, they've they played better in the back half of the season, but you know, like I said, we have Luke Altmaier in there who maybe isn't quite as good at eluding pressure as uh, John Paddock is, and this is still an offensive line that has given up a combined 13 sacks in the three games leading up to Indiana. Um a part of that was teams were able to play a lot closer to the line of scrimmage, didn't have to worry about getting beat deep. Um part of it was also Altmeyer's inexperience, and both of those are gonna come back into play against Iowa. I mean is back in there. Um he's maybe not able to identify the rush as well as John Paddock did. That could be another reason. I mean, he's a sixth-year quarterback. I think he knew knows what he's doing back there a little bit better than Luke Altmeyer. So it's Again, it's just, it's so hard to, to expect what's going to happen with Illinois when Illinois has the ball. But I think the key for Illinois when they do have the ball is how that offensive line holds up and if they can protect Luke Altmaier and allow him to kind of open up this offense, unlike a lot of the offenses that Iowa has played this year. And for Iowa, their key is, you know, how they're able to defend three wide receiver sets, which is something they have not seen much of this year. And now they're going to have to do it without their best cornerback. And then on the flip side, when Iowa has the ball, I'm really curious to see if Deacon Hill can replicate his performance versus Rutgers against the Illinois secondary that just got handled pretty well by Brandon Soresby and Donovan McCulley on in Indiana. Um I mean, Cali Manis, Braden Locke, and Talia Tunga-Viola all had some big plays against this Illinois secondary over the past month. So, I mean, on top of what we just saw Indiana do, put up 45 points. So, I mean, this may not be a game where Iowa has to only score 10 points in order to win, again, with their best player out and with Illinois being able to open up the offense a little bit. And the weakness of this Illinois defense is in the back end. So I'm curious if Kirk Ferentz is going to be willing to test it. I mean, Illinois is a defense that's just 71st nationally in turnovers forced, 119th in interceptions, and 78th in passing defense. So it seems like it could be relatively uh, low risk if they, d- if they do decide to challenge this secondary. And uh, keep in mind all those numbers that Illinois has been playing in the Big Ten West while, be, while being a pretty bad pass defense. So i um, curious to see if Deacon Hill can replicate that offense and if Kirk Ferentz is going to allow him to kind of throw the ball down the field a little bit more. And for the Illinois defense, you know, I'm not expecting them to all of a sudden play like they have Devin Witherspoon or Sidney Brown back in that secondary. Um, Deacon Hill has a big arm. He's coming off his best performance as a starter this season, so he sh- and he should be able to make some plays. But I'm curious if this defense can even force Iowa to turn to the passing game, because you know if Iowa feels like they can run the ball 40 to 50 times consistently, churn out positive yardage, and control the game that way, it's none none of it. Won't nothing else will really matter. Um, The game's over if they can do that. So can Illinois shut down that 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 Iowa run game and kind of force them to? to throw the ball a little bit more. Can Keith Randolph, Johnny Newton, Seth Coleman, Dylan Rosiek, can they make life difficult for this offensive line? Um, so with all that in mind, I think that's a perfect transition into my five big 10 betting locks of the uh, week 13. And I'll kick it off with my pick for Illinois versus Iowa. Iowa is a three and a half point favorite at home against Illinois. The over under has um, been pretty steady at 30 and a half. And like I've been saying, it's hard to get a read on this Illinois team. Um, Will John Paddock maybe end up playing? Um, Can Luke Altmaier elevate his play from what we've seen over the past few weeks? Um, But I think the fact of the matter is that one of these teams and coaching staffs is used to being in this position, playing meaningful November football and getting wins despite bad conditions when they need it the most in order to reach their preseason goals. I mean, Iowa has been in this position in the West year in and year out, and they tend to deliver. Illinois, meanwhile, I mean, this is still a very young team relatively new coaching staff i don't know how familiar they are with these situations and they have to walk into kinnick stadium which is going to be a very difficult place to play i mean that crowd knows they're a win away from clinching the west which given everything that's been going on with iowa would be a tremendous tremendous season at least in my eyes so i mean we know who iowa is there aren't any hypotheticals or speculation with them they are who they are and for that reason my official pick is for iowa to emerge the winner and clinch the west but I certainly wouldn't be shocked if Illinois pulled off the upset. Um, And so with that spread at three and a half, I'm staying away from that. I think last week was an outlier um, for for Iowa against Rutgers, kind of winning 22 to nothing um, against an offense that's as one dimensional as any in the country in Rutgers. So I think this should be another close game. I'm not really touching that spread. Instead, I'm going to do something I have not done in years with Iowa, and that's take the over. This is the first time I'm going to be taking an Iowa over since, I mean, at least 2021, maybe even before that. And um, mainly because, I mean, I've been talking a lot about these offenses in my preview for this game. Iowa is coming off their best offensive game of the year against a great defense in Rutgers, and they're going up against a very susceptible Illinois defense and a susceptible Illinois secondary. Uh, I think Illinois could very well be the biggest challenge Iowa has seen on the offensive side of the ball all year. And You know, with the over under at 30.5, there's only a couple plays that need to be made in this game in order for that over to hit. Um, I love the Iowa defense, but their best player is gone, and it's kind of late in the week for that to happen, too, so not a lot of time to make adjustments. So I think that there may be some big plays in store for this Illinois passing game. Um, You know, there. The Iowa Unders have continually cashed for them all season long dating back to last year, but I think that really has had just to do with the ineptitude of the offenses they've faced as it does have to do with their own team. So um, with that spread and over-under in mind, that's an implied score of about 17-13, to and I think Illinois can come up with more than 13 points in this game. Um, And Their defense just gave up 45 to Indiana, so I think we may maybe even see... um, Iowa have one of their best offensive games of the season. So I know it's a little risky, have not done it very much, but I am taking the over at 30 and a half in uh, Iowa versus Illinois. My second Big Ten betting lock of week 13 is going to be Ohio State minus 27 and a half against Minnesota. I think I haven't talked about Ohio State a ton over the past few weeks. A lot of it is because they finally gotten healthy. I mean, they are finally like playing like they should on offense. Cade Stover, Marvin Harrison, Travion Henderson. Um, Emeka Ibuka all healthy and I mean it's a veteran team who I don't think is going to be looking ahead to Michigan too early I think they they know what is in front of them and it's a Minnesota team that they are just vastly more talented than vastly more experienced than um, I think Ohio State is just so much better than Minnesota, who is coming off of an absolute beatdown at the hands of Purdue. And so it's just hard for me to look at this Minnesota team and try to find areas where they can find success. You know, this past weekend with Michigan State playing Ohio State, I could at least point to that Michigan State defensive front and say maybe they can make it hard for Ohio State to run the ball. Um, I can't really say that with Minnesota. You know, defensively, they have Tyler Newbin, who has been great, but that's really it. They haven't been able to stop the run or the pass on a consistent basis. Offensively, you know, Ethan Caliac Manis has been erratic as any quarterback in college football. You know, their, their running back room has kind of been a, a revolving door, and they have still have yet to really get their pass catchers very involved in this offense. And I just think, I mean, Ohio State is peaking at the right time. I think they're going to come in, play their most complete game of the season. Um, on the week before of the big game, and I just think Ohio State's going to spank them. Simply put, they're the better team. They're going to come out. They're going to play like it. And minus twenty-seven and a half, I'll take that all day. I'll take it all the way up to thirty. I mean, they beat. They were up on by Michigan. They are up on Michigan State, thirty-five to three at half. It was a swift swift spanking. This is the senior night for a lot of guys who are going to be going to the NFL. They're going to want to put their best, best foot forward. I just don't see many reasons for me to think that Minnesota can keep us even remotely close. So Ohio State will cover minus 27.5 at home against Minnesota. My third lock will be from the Nebraska-Wisconsin game in Madison. Uh, Wisconsin is a four and a half point favorite over the Huskers in this game, but I'm actually going to take the under at 36.5. Because listen, I mean, Wisconsin is averaging 13 points per game over the past five games. Nebraska is averaging 17 over their last six. Both of them are coming off of probably their worst offensive games of the entire season. On Nebraska side, we're not sure who's going to start at quarterback. Heinrich Hargberg sounds like he may not be ready to go because of that an- ankle injury uh, he sustained against... Maryland Chubba Purdy is apparently still sore dealing with some sort of nagging injury but he didn't play well as is Jeff Sims is healthy but he's been miserable all year long so you can once again count on bad quarterback play from Nebraska on the Wisconsin side like I said before they got pushed around against Northwestern had an overall lack of effort they did shut down um, Northwestern in that second half but that game total was only at 34 points and it was assisted by a late Wisconsin touchdown with a few seconds left Braylon Allen, still not 100%. Their other running backs have not looked good. Just like I've been saying, both of these offenses have been horrible. And this is an over-under I'd expect to be closer to 30 than 40. So at 36.5, absolutely love it. Would take it all the way down to 35. Honestly, I would would still be pondering it if it was down at 30.5 like the Iowa under is. So um, as long as it stays above 36, hammer this under. My fourth lock will come out of the Rutgers Penn State game where the line opened up at 17 and a half and it's gone all the way up at to 20 and a half as Penn State is a huge favorite over Rutgers. And I'm going to take the Scarlet Knights to cover Uh, mainly because of what I talked about before. There is every reason in the world for this Penn State game, for this Penn State team to kind of give up on the season. I don't expect them to do quite that. I think they're going to end up winning this game but i think Rutgers can hang around i mean they have a great defense and i don't think they're going to make life for this penn state offense who is reeling now lost their offensive coordinator i don't think they're all of a sudden going to find a whole lot of answers out of their back pocket with the help of james franklin probably taking over a lot of that offense um i just don't think that we're going to see a much different offense than what we've seen against penn state i mean against ohio state and michigan um And sure, this Rutgers offense is also one-dimensional, probably won't muster a whole lot against Penn State, which also makes the under a pretty good play. I believe it's around 42.5 right now. Um, But at the end of the day, I'm just taking Rutgers because... You know, I trust the coaching staff for them to really get them ready to come up and play this game and come out with a lot of energy. And I cannot say the same for Penn State. So I I didn't love it at 17 and a half, but at 20 and a half, I'll certainly take that. I mean, above um, around three touchdowns, I think Rutgers can hang in there and, and keep that game close enough. And my final Big Ten betting lock for Week 13 will come out of the Purdue-Northwestern game. And this one has been really interesting because Northwestern opened as a a one-and-a-half-point favorite, and it has swung all the way in the other direction. Purdue Purdue is now a three-point favorite, so I am leaning kind of towards Northwestern plus three to keep that game close. It seems like everyone is just continues to doubt Northwestern and I would love to continue to ride them. So I will probably take Northwestern plus three when I'm, you know, putting together my own picks. But as far as my locks go, I'm actually going to go with the over in this game at 46 and a half. I mean, we saw an offensive explosion out of Purdue. It seemed like everything that hadn't been working this season up until this point had been working. I mean, Tyrone Tracy and Devin Mockaby ran, just ran the blood out of the ball. And, um, you know, Hudson Card had his best game of the year and, I think this is a Northwestern defense that's definitely susceptible up front. And I think if North uh, Purdue can kind of run the ball like we saw them do against Minnesota, it can open up a whole lot in the back end. So I'm expecting Purdue to kind of carry this momentum, at least offensively, into this game. I think a lot of it stems from them kind of no longer having to worry about hitting that six wins. You know, they were eliminated from bowl eligibility before that game. and I think it loosened up this team a lot. They're kind of playing with nothing to lose. Northwestern, meanwhile, still in the thick of the Big Ten West race somehow, Um So, I think that, you know, Purdue is going to be able to put up some points on Northwestern and, even though Purdue's offense had a lot of answers, it seemed like everything kind of finally came full circle for them and they had a great game. It still has been the same, same thing out of their defense. You know, they'll make a few big plays, but they are especially susceptible in that back end. So, you know, they're good for a few plays behind the line of scrimmage, but um, Ben Bryant probably going to start this game again over Brendan Sullivan. Uh, I think he's capable of making some plays too. So at 46 and a half, you know, I think this is going to be a, a high scoring game like we saw out of Illinois and Indiana last week. Um, I think I wouldn't be surprised if you know, both teams got up around 30. So it should be a great game. I it could be a lot of momentum swings, um, which just makes me a little nervous about that. That line, you know, could see a back and forth game where maybe a last second touchdown and a seven point win is on the table for um, for either team, really. But at 46 and a half, I think this is going to be a high scoring affair. And I, I will certainly take the over. And that will do it for this week's episode of the Floor Slap College Football Podcast. As always, I've been your host, Sean. Appreciate you hanging in there with me and listening along. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at the Floor Slap and check out our website thefloorslap.com. We're in the full swing of college basketball now. My partner Jordan is pumping out a lot of really great content, so make sure you tune in there and make sure you check in next week. Our podcast will be coming out a few days early in prep of you know rivalry week. Going to do a huge preview for that Ohio State Michigan game, which is you know the biggest game of the college football season. Cannot wait for that. But in the meantime, sit back. Relax, stay safe, and enjoy one of the final weekends of college football we have this season. Bye.